It has been a treat to be with you, and I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity to open God's Word once again with you all. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is our focus for this final message, and I know Dr. Schwartz is going to bring it all together tomorrow morning with a message on really the glory of Christ, and so I have one more opportunity to underline the humanity of Christ and His particular role in helping us, and I want to connect that to my assigned topic, which is uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in Christ's life. Abraham Cooper said the church has never sufficiently confessed the influence the Holy Spirit exerted upon the work of Christ, and I'm going to continue that great tradition and not uh, be able to do that either. So, uh, but we will get to a point in the sermon where I'm going to speak to you about the Spirit's ministry in the life of Christ and how that relates to us. But what I want to talk to you about today, you can title this sermon if you're into sermon titles, Hold Fast and Draw Near, is a, a text in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Let me begin by reading that. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Word of the Living God. Have you heard the phrase occupational obsolescence? Occupational obsolescence. It's something that for centuries experts have warned us that machines could be taking over. From Paul Bunyan's concern to the modern worker, occupational obsolescence, easy for me to say, is simply a job that's been phased out of existence because of advances in technology. A few years ago, writing for The Atlantic, Derek Thompson penned an article entitled, A World Without Work. And this is what he said. When workers look up from their spreadsheets, they see automation high and low. Robots in the operating room and behind the fast food counter. They imagine self-driving cars snaking through the streets and Amazon drones dotting the sky, replacing millions of drivers, warehouse stalkers, and retail workers. They observe that the capabilities of machines already formidable continue to expand exponentially while our own remain the same. And they wonder, is any job truly safe? In 2013, Oxford University researchers forecasted that machines may be able to perform half of all U.S. jobs in the next two decades. Well, we're halfway there, and it's not unbelievable. If you don't believe in occupational obsolescence, just pull over on the 99 one day and ask any horse. No longer the useful creatures they once were. 
unless you're a degenerate gambler. I mean, think about it. Seriously. The horse. How essential was the horse in the farm life until the tractor came along? How essential was the horse for transportation until it was replaced by the automobile? The horse was the superior army's advantage in war, but now there's tanks and fighter planes. It's over for the horse. I live in an equestrian neighborhood not far from the church. I serve at in Los Angeles and... Every time I see a horse, it's a bit of a wonder to me. These people are just feeding that thing for fun. (laughs) Going around the block. They are living to serve their horse. It didn't used to be that way. You understand occupational obsolescence because you don't know any telegraph operators. No one sits at a switchboard anymore. There are no stagecoach drivers, though I once met a guy in Los Angeles who was a waiter full-time and played a stagecoach driver on TV. The milkman? Gone. Anyway, today he'd be the almond milkman. (laughs) I don't understand how that works. Almonds are not mammals. The ultimate expression of occupational obsolescence is found in our text before us this afternoon. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. It's a description of Jesus as our great high priest, the man and his role in heaven now. And as we look at this message and the two commands that are overarching that drive this message, holding fast and drawing near, this Scripture shows us its essential for us to understand what it means that Jesus is our great sympathetic high priest. How He, through the Spirit of God, helps us as the same Spirit of God that ministered to Him ministers to us as we, like our Lord, resist temptation and endure our race of faith. It's essential to understand this because there are two commands directed towards Christians in this passage. The first command is found in verse 14. It says to hold fast our confession. Uh, Another way to say that is to persevere. And then in the next verse, verse 16, uh, is actually the second command. It's to draw near with confidence. That is to say, Christian, if you are to persevere in your faith, to continue on as a disciple of Jesus... This verse has something to teach you about Christ and His essential priesthood. And His priesthood is directly related to our perseverance in the faith, our continuing on as believers, our pressing on in the race of faith, our moving towards the finish line, our desire to follow Christ all the way to the River Jordan. Most of us don't come from a similar background as the original recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. They were a largely Jewish audience who had become Christians. And we don't know what it was like for them to have a priest in Israel. But perhaps you've spoken to a Roman Catholic friend, and they've said to you, you know, how do you have access to God? How do you confess your sins apart from the priest? And maybe in classic Protestant style, you were tempted to say something like, I don't need a priest. I have direct access to God. But friend, that's not true. 
We desperately need a priest, and we have a priest, and he is not a merely human priest. We have a great high priest whose very existence in ministry, his ongoing function in heaven, one of his great joys is that everyone who trusts in him, he serves as a priest, a priest that was greater and is greater than every other priesthood, even the one instituted by God in the Old Covenant, and certainly greater than any false form of the priesthood in practice today. You see, all other priests are now absolutely ineffectual and absolutely obsolete. Jesus' high priestly ministry is essential, friends, for your perseverance in the faith. And it's essential if you're going to draw near to God in prayer. And as we look at this passage this afternoon, wanting to learn more about the truth of who Jesus is, since He is our great high priest, since He is the Son of God, a man who lived in perfect obedience, who died in our place, who, who passed through the heavens, we must hold fast our confession And since Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, we should draw near to that throne of grace for help. You see, it's the transcendence of our Lord, the transcendence of our Lord at God's right hand and His humility that are both essential elements in this unique effectiveness that He has as our high priest. And if we want to persevere in trials and receive His help through prayer, we must understand who Jesus is. So let's look at this ministry in two parts to expand our familiarity with Jesus' essential work as our great high priest. Let's begin looking at verse 14 with His infinite supremacy. His infinite supremacy. Our text begins with the word therefore. Your Bible may say since. It's a word that links verse 14 with the rest of the discussion of Jesus' priesthood to all that's gone before in the book of Hebrews. The theme of the book of Hebrews is quite simple. It can be summarized in just a few words. Jesus is better. The recipients of this letter were on the brink of recapitulation. They were thinking about going back to their former manner of life. The practices of their forefathers. A return to Judaism was in their minds because persecution had intensified in this period in church history and this small fledgling church was undergoing attack. Some of its members had been imprisoned, chapter 10. Some of the members had their possessions confiscated. Almost all of them had been alienated by their family and friends, outcasts from Jewish society, no longer welcome at the temple, no longer welcome at family gatherings. At the festivals were such uh, an integral part of Jewish identity identity they'd lost so much of who they were and they'd exchanged it for a Jesus who was no longer present on earth but who had ascended to heaven and undoubtedly they heard their friends and relatives say how do you get by without a priest how are you hearing from God if it's not through Moses we have Moses and so the pastor who writes to them the epistle to the Hebrews is trying to urge them to see that Jesus is worth it, that Jesus is better, better than all that had come before. In fact, the culmination of all the promises in the Old Testament is, are found in Jesus and in His ongoing work and ministry and future plan. And as the author lays out for these people the superiority of Jesus, first to, in, in chapter 1, to the angels, those magnificent creatures that we heard about in an earlier sermon, who attend God's very throne, The author reminds us that they're merely creatures. And Jesus, well, He's their Creator. The author goes on to describe Moses, the man of God, the most revered person in all of Jewish history, is merely a man. 
But Jesus is the great bringer of revelation from God in the past. And God uh, has, has sees that, that Moses' role is one as, as the, the builder of the house. But Jesus is, is the architect of this house. God speaks now in a way He had not spoken before. Before He spoke prophet-wise through the prophets. But now He speaks son-wise through His own Son. The author of Hebrews is, is concerned that we understand that in Jesus we find greater and final revelation. Even the Sabbath that the people experienced in part and received so much blessings from is fully realized in Christ. And the argument goes on and on. Jesus is better. Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. His rest is a superior rest. And now in verse 14 of chapter 4 he begins to discuss this very important facet of the ministry of Jesus. His high priestly ministry. A discussion that will run starting in this verse all the way actually through chapter 10 focusing on different aspects of Christ's priestly ministry to convince us of his infinite supremacy and it all begins in verse 14 that's the therefore he's trying to assert his fundamental premise premise that Jesus is better and specifically in our verse he's better as a great high priest that's what it says in verse 14 since we have a great high priest That's a Hebraic expression. Like holy, holy, holy. It's a way of amplifying. It's the same word in the original. It could be translated a great, great priest or a high, high priest. You see, Jesus has infinite supremacy because He is of a superior priesthood. His greatness is unequaled because He was appointed in chapter 5, verse 5, by God Himself, it says. You are My Son today. I've become Your Father, He says. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood has been portrayed as greater than all other priesthoods before it, even the priesthood instituted by God Himself. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses' brother was chosen by Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be a priest unto God. And that family line of Aaron, the Levitical tribe, was intended to be God's people's priests. And a priest has one job. He provides access to God. He stands between God and the people, offering sacrifices as their representative. He stands before God, representing the people to God and representing God to the people. That's the role of the priest in Israel. And there were many jobs that he had regarding leading worship in the temple. There were many priests from the line of Aaron who would fulfill these responsibilities. But there was only one high priest. One. And when he would die, another man would be put in his place. And he would become the high priest. And year after year and generation after generation, different priests would serve in this role. All in the priestly class trying to do exactly what God had intended uh, for his worshipers to do. You see, worship in the old covenant was prescribed exactly by God in exquisite details from the curtains in the temple to the clothing and sacrifices that the priests were to wear and offer. Wear the clothing, offer the sacrifices. Don't mix that up. And we don't think about worship that way very often. We mostly think worship and weeb. Right? Just singing. That's how we think about worship. That's how we think about worship. Worship is is hymns and stuff. And people get upset about worship in the church today. They think about their preferences. I don't don't like the flugelhorn. I love the flugelhorn. I love the flugelhorn. But that's never how God intended His people to think about worship in terms of preferences. 
God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in the Old Testament, they were very concerned about this because they had numerous examples of those who refused to worship God as He prescribed and approached His presence in a cavalier way, and it did not end well for them. And when we hear these words, we have a great, a great high priest. We see the old priest in Israel uh, wearing that clothing, layer upon layer, that special headpiece, the, the apron they called the ephod, like a piece of clothing. It had 12 precious stones on it, three across and four down, each representing a tribe of Israel. And the priest wore it over his heart. And on this ephod was a shoulder stone, a black onyx stone on each shoulder and a gemsmith would inscribe on each of those black onyx stones six of the names of the tribes of Israel on one shoulder six sons of Israel the tribes on the other shoulder and when this priest would enter when he would worship when he would perform the rituals that God required him to perform he did so on behalf of the nation literally wearing their names on his shoulders and over his heart and he would perform these rituals on behalf of his fellow Israelites on behalf of the 12 tribes. And he bore them on his shoulders, as it were, as a priest before the people unto God and unto God before the people. Jesus' priestly ministry was superior in every way. Jesus did not carry with him an ephod. Instead, he hung on a cross naked and stripped bare. But on his heart, he bore the name of all who he would bring to the Father. He bore the name of all who would trust in Him. And that's what we learned this morning, isn't it? In Romans chapter 5, that we are part of a corporate identity, a corporate solidarity in Christ. He carries us all with Him as His family, as His people, as our covenant head. And it was not just one nation for whom He died or one tribe. It was the nations, as we just sang. It was men from every tribe and every tongue and every, every nation. Jesus' blood was precious. His death was matchless. Jesus' sacrifice and atonement was full and final. And that's why His priesthood is superior. So superior because He was appointed by God Himself. He's a priest without compare. He also has a superior, not only priesthood, a superior accomplishment look at this text again in verse 14 it says we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens passed through the heavens this is a spatial reference of jesus's ascension and enthronement but it would remind every hearer of the rich tradition of atonement and the the spatial movement of the priest you see the The priest had a particular, the high priest had a special responsibility that landed on him once a year. One day a year, the great sacrifice was called for on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it was on that day, and only on that day, when the high priest of Israel was to sacrifice a bull for his own sins, you see. He wasn't sinless. He was a human being, a sinful human being, that old Israelite high priest. And he had to sacrifice for his own sins in the Day of Atonement and the sins of his family members. He would enter after having sacrificed for his own sins. He would enter into the outer court of the temple, a place that was sacred, reserved only for the people of God, the nation of Israel. And on that one day, he would proceed through a portal into the inner court from the outer court. Uh, and the inner court was placed for the, the priestly class reserved for their entrance alone. And he would enter into that sacred space wearing the priestly garb, carrying the priestly instruments. And on that one day a year, he would enter into the Holy of Holies, the most 
most holy place, a place that was intended by God to represent His presence with His people. It had in it the most sacred piece of furniture in all the universe, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that box was a copy of the Ten Commandments, God's revelation of Himself to His people. And next to that, inside that Ark of the Covenant, was a bowl of manna, right? A reminder of God's provision and the greatest example of God's deliverance when He took His people from Egypt that they'd ever known in their history. And on the top of that box, that Ark of the Covenant was a lid. And on the lid were two angelic features with angelic creatures with their, ling- with their wings overstretched. And the priest was to enter with great care and caution and fastidiousness exactly according to God's law. He was to apply and sprinkle blood all over the Ark of the Covenant and to that altar on behalf of the sins of the people to atone, to remind himself and the people that sin required death, that God is holy, that God is just, and that sins must be punished. And this animal's life was a reminder that there needed to be sacrifice for sins. There needed to be payment for sins. And year after year, this ritual would be repeated in exactly the same way. And the priest would eventually die and be replaced by another priest and another priest and another priest. And the endless sacrifices went on and on and on until Jesus passed through. Not the outer court to the inner court. Not the inner court to the symbolic holy of holies, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Jesus went through the heavens. You see, see, after they took Jesus down from that cross, having made atonement for sins, not a repeatable annual atonement, not an ongoing sacrifice, but a once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice, He was laid in the tomb of death. And three days later, God vindicated all Jesus' claims by raising Him up from the dead. And Jesus ministered to His disciples. And then He left them ascending unto heaven. And He was enthroned. He sat down at God's right hand. No priest ever sat down in the Holy of Holies. There was no green room for the priest. He can sit down and have a snack in the Holy of Holies. And it wasn't a place they were to linger or stay because their work wasn't finished. It was a place where they were not comfortable. They didn't enter with confidence, but with fear and trepidation. But Jesus went through the heavens, our text says. He went all the way, not into the symbolic presence of God, but into His Father's actual presence. And as God's Son, He was welcomed there as the sinless Lamb of God. He was accepted there, and His faithful sacrifice was full and final and free. And God looked at His Son, and said once again, well done, good and faithful servant. And as he sat down at God's right hand, accomplishing his high priestly work, Hebrews 6.19 describes his ministry to us in the same exquisite detail. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. You see, When Jesus died on that cross, the veil that separated the inner court from the outer court, from the the inner court from the Holy of Holies, was torn into a symbolic reminder that God would not be accessed through the priestly system ever again, but now and forevermore through this great high priest, Jesus Christ, a superior priest with a superior accomplishment. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, That was only a copy of the true one. He entered 
heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence, not year after year like the old priest, but once and for all, a superior priesthood in a superior accomplishment that shows us his infinite supremacy. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the richness of verse 14. It continues to describe not just his superior priesthood and his superior accomplishment, but these next words show his superior identity, all pointing to that infinite supremacy, his superior identity. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's his identity. Jesus, the Son of God. Whenever you see Jesus' name in Scripture... It's not placed there indiscriminately. But you've noticed sometimes he's called Jesus. Sometimes he's called Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Here he's called Jesus, the Son of God. A triumphant identification for this high priest. The teaching here is that his name was Jesus. That's his most human name. It was an ordinary, common name in Israel, but a name with an important past linked to the Hebrew people. It's the same name as Joshua, right? A good name for a young Jewish boy or a young Bakersfield boy. (laughs) Joshua. That's That's what Mary would say when she'd call him in for supper. Yeshua! He's out playing with his friends. She'd say, Jesus... Yeshua, come in for supper. And kids, he would come right away. (laughs) Every time. He obeyed his mama. It was his human name. Mary knew that because an angel told her to name him that. Jesus, because the meaning of that name was he will save his people from their sins. But in this text, he's not just Jesus. He's Jesus, the Son of God. And here you have that hypostatic union we've been contemplating this weekend. The Son of God was fully God and fully man. He's the author and the author and pastor who wrote the book of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit, is reminding us that Jesus is not just any man. Contrary to what you hear today, Jesus was not just a good teacher or a prophet from God or a wise and godly sage. He was God, a very God. And if you deny Jesus, then you deny God. And if you renounce Jesus, then you renounce God. There was no turning back for the recipients of this letter or for us. Any temptation to return to our former manner of life, you don't have to be Jewish to get the message of Hebrews, a message about faithful perseverance, a message about the danger of apostasy. Jesus is the exclusive way of salvation he is the only way to know god the way the truth and the life the only way to get to the father he's the priest with access to god that we desperately need he's jesus the son of god and all of this reinforces his infinite supremacy to show us that he's better in every respect and it's a message every one of us needs to hear if we're going to obey this command that faces us at the end of verse 14 let's hold firmly to the faith we profess or let us hold fast our confession what is that confession we usually think of confession as you know i did it i admit it but a confession is far more than an admission a confession is a a statement of belief in Hebrews, it's, it's been a significant theme here. Christ is Lord is the confession. 
It's the essence and basic statement of Christianity repeatedly. And in this book, the author refers to our confession all the way through, starting in chapter 2. It's a way of speaking of the faith, and we're called to hold fast, to grip tightly to this faith, to hang on to Jesus. This teaches us so much about perseverance. You know, there's this axiomatic truth we always say, and it's right, but I don't, it's not in the Bible. It's once saved, always saved, right? That's true. The unbreakable chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8 cannot be broken, not by the will of man, certainly not in the will of God. It's biblical. It starts with predestination. It ends with glorification without exception. You cannot undo salvation being a work of God that He finishes what He starts in a person's life. Jesus said that His Father, no one can snatch you out of His Father's hand. You are safe and secure in God's hand, Christian. Our salvation is eternally secure. But once saved, always saved isn't a verse in the Bible. It's a concept. Another concept in the Bible, especially in the book of Hebrews, that does not contradict that truth, but reinforces it, are the warnings directed towards Christians that they must hold fast to their confession. It is not enough to have walked an aisle as a boy and then live however you want to live. That is not the message of Christianity. The book of Hebrews is full of warnings directed towards Christians that they must hold fast to their confession and there is no contradiction between that and the perseverance of the saints. God can warn His children and His warnings are real. His warnings have teeth and they are intended as one of the means of grace that God uses to keep us following after Jesus. And I think the message of verse 14, the message of this verse before us as it relates to Christian perseverance and the conviction of this pastor inspired by God in the book of Hebrews in penning this epistle for the original audience and for every Christian that would ever follow, the conviction is that the key to Christian perseverance is a tight grip on the Savior because He has a tight grip on you. Friend, hang on to Jesus every day. And when you feel like faltering, when you feel like you're going to slip away, when you don't think you have the strength to follow after Jesus, especially as increasing persecution and the cost rising in our society the answer is to hang on to him all the more to confess him all the more he will be faithful when you are not that's why salvation is by faith that's the confession it's our faith in christ jesus it's how god intends to keep us by his grace when we fix our eyes on jesus seeing him as our great high priest because he's better jesus is better We use that word all the time, don't we? Better. We don't say superior very much. You guys probably do because you're such a fancy church, but (laughs) better. You know what? What's the what's the does anybody know the better taco place in Bakersfield? Because I bet you've got one. You know, the the Dodgers, they're better than the Giants, obviously. (laughs) And and everyone else better it's a superlative that we're familiar with and jesus is shown to be better and worthy from everything he has saved you from he's better than every idol that could beguile you he's better than the pleasures of this world 
Jesus is better than fortune and fame. Jesus is better than an easy life or comfort. Jesus is better than man-made religion and ritual at every turn. Tell it to your heart. Jesus is better. He's better and better than temptation. And you see His infinite supremacy now transitions to show us that that same supremacy, that same greatness in no way diminishes the sympathy of Jesus. So we've seen His infinite supremacy in verse 14, but verse 15 shows us an intimate sympathy. An intimate sympathy. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. This intimate sympathy is based, rooted and grounded completely in the theme of this weekend. The humanity of Jesus. He says it in almost a triple negative to reinforce how, how much he's insisting on this truth of Jesus' sympathy with us. The kind of priest he is. Not only is he a superior priest, an infinitely supreme priest in his priesthood, his accomplishment, and his identity, but now he's an intimately sympathetic high priest and he wants us to see just how sympathetic, just how familiar he is with our struggles and so he says it in we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness there's an easier way to say that but it doesn't underline it as much as this we do not have a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses that word sympathizes as as pastor steve said is a beautiful word in the original language it sounds exactly like our word. It's sympathesi. Sympathesi. It's where we get our word sympathy from. It's a sympathy. It's an empathy. It's a compassion. It's a desire to help. It's an understanding of what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. It's to see pain in someone else. And though not experiencing exactly what they've experienced at the same time, but feeling that pain as well. Jesus is that kind of high priest unlike the Old Testament priest who's able to sympathize because he's a human too, Jesus has human sympathy that's greater because the old priest could sympathize with our weaknesses because he had our same weaknesses and fell into the same sin. But Jesus is superior in his sympathy because he knew the weaknesses and frailties of humanity as a real human man. And he was tempted, as our text says, in every way, but he was without sin. And you see, this makes him more sympathetic kind of priest than the old priesthood. Do you see how that is? Maybe it sounds difficult to you because how can it be? If Jesus never knew the taste of sin, and He never did, then how could He truly understand your struggle against sin? Part of this is that we believe the world's lie. Part of our misunderstanding here. You see, we live in a world that tells us all the time dumb stuff. Like, 
You know, only an alcoholic can really understand the struggles of an alcoholic. So gather up in the circle. That's a lie. And our hearts whisper bigger lies than that sometimes. And you have to correct it with with truth. When your heart says, really nobody knows what I'm going through. Friend, that's a lie. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through because He's gone through it too. He has a nature like our nature, yet He experienced the full force of temptation's power. Jesus' sinlessness did not lessen His ability to understand our plight and weaknesses. Instead, it maximizes it. Let me help you understand this. We've all felt the force of temptation's power to a certain point. And then at a certain point, every one of us knows what it's like to give in to temptation. And once you give in to temptation, the temptation is gone. It's sin. You've acted. You've snapped. You've trespassed God's law. And all of us have resisted to certain points in our battle against sin and then failed. Jesus resisted as well. But He never fell. And so the force of temptation's power was to the absolute highest because there was never a point where Jesus succumbed to that temptation. Instead, it was perfect resistance. And so he knows the force of temptation's power far greater than we do. Jesus never gave in. And now's the part where I take a brief excursus to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which was my assignment. Let's go to Jesus' most famous temptation. In the wilderness, right after his baptism, right after... God says of His Son, this is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Trinity is on display in the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit alights onto our Lord and the Father speaks His approval of His Son. And then immediately Jesus is is pulled off into the wilderness. Tempted by the devil himself for 40 days. Apart from food, The devil offers Jesus temptations that are unique to Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. Go ahead, men and women of Bakersfield. Turn stones into bread. You can't. You could turn bread into stones if you leave it outside here long enough. (laughs) Right? But we can't give in to that temptation. It's not in the realm of possibilities for us. Yeah, Jesus was hungry. We've been hungry. But that's not the nature of the temptation there. The temptation is to do something that only the divine can do. What else? He resisted that temptation. And then he's propelled to the heights of the temple. Tempted by the devil to throw himself off and show who he really was to the people and cause the nations to come and worship him, cause angels to rescue him. What kind of temptation is that? You ever face that one? This morning I saw it in all its grandeur. The 12-story, 176-foot-tall Stockdale Tower. 
Who needs the Chrysler building, right? Bakersfield's tallest building. It's got a hipster coffee shop next to it that I like, Cloud Nine. It was no temptation to me to jump off. Not interested. It was a unique temptation to Jesus because it's Jesus' right to be worshipped by the nations for all eternity. But the unique temptation was more than that. It was an opportunity like the stones to leverage His deity. And if He did, He would fail as a man. Because Jesus was leading a new race, a new people, a new humanity. He was a second Adam, and the entirety of his earthly life and ministry was lived as a man. That's why Pastor Steve wants to have this conference. I I hear it in every message he's given. He wants you to understand that the humanity of Jesus is so helpful to us. The entirety of his earthly life and ministry was lived as a man. Yes, fully God and fully man. But in his humanity, the constant reminder the Gospels writers would give to us is Jesus' dependence, as we heard in the last session, on the Word of God, on prayer, and on the empowerment of the Spirit. And there's so much more to say about this. That's why uh, Abe Cooper says the church has never sufficiently confessed the influence of the Holy Spirit exerted upon the work of Christ, but you get glimmers of it in the Gospels. Even before the Gospels, the Messiah is portrayed in the book of Isaiah repeatedly as a man of the Spirit. And Jesus' entire life and ministry, the entire life and ministry of Christ involved the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've seen glimmers of it all weekend long. His conception, Mary was overshadowed by the Almighty. His birth attended by the Spirit of God. His baptism testified to by the Spirit of God's presence in the form of a dove. His temptation, He's ministered to by by the the Spirit, uh, moved along into the wilderness. Jesus' Messiahship is repeatedly asserted to be attended by the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus' teaching and preaching was in the strength of the Spirit. Jesus' miracles were by the Spirit. Jesus' life was lived by the Spirit. Jesus' death, according to one passage perhaps in Hebrews, involves the Spirit, and His resurrection is also attested to by the Spirit of God. From conception to birth to baptism, and especially to Jesus' temptation... Jesus lived as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit He left to us. And so don't say He doesn't understand temptation. Don't say He doesn't know how to avail Himself like you could avail yourself. From His conception, birth, understanding, growth, baptism, united will of Father, Son, and Spirit inseparably operating to accomplish one divine purpose in perfect harmony, Jesus is still a man. Think of the examples set before us in Scripture that are beyond just the ordinary temptations of deity, which we do not share. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all part and parcel of being a person. But Jesus stayed obedient, perfectly obedient, though feeling the full force and pull of temptation's power. Jesus obeyed His Father, even into the darkest night of His greatest temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. Death 
as he faced his, his tempter all alone, his sleeping disciples with no compassion for Jesus, Jesus weeping and sweating blood and laboring with God in prayer, fearful and frightful of enduring the wrath of God, wanting to get out from under it, knowing at his disposal is a legion of angels at any moment. Nevertheless, he endures that faithful night, the eve of his crucifixion, and he prays, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus endured the full force of temptation's power and never sinned or was tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin jesus was a teenager he felt the categories of temptation you may say well jesus was never geriatric and it's tough look i'm i'm en route but here's the thing It's not the temptations that are particular to teenagers or particular to old people or particular to Bakersfieldians. I'm not sure if that's what you're called. It's that temptation's power has a singular note to it that resonates with all of us. And Jesus felt that same note. I have really enjoyed the music at this conference, Joel played the piano beautifully today. I know that because I took piano lessons in third grade. Notice I didn't say since third grade. I said in third grade, prepositions. And some people have argued I may have been the greatest piano the world has ever known. Pianist. I have argued that. Prove me wrong. There's no way to know. But I do know this. I could go over there. It's a nice piano. And I think I could find middle C. And if I did, I could tell you about something in the Oxford Companion to Music, a fancy book with music theory in it. There's something called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance is the same principle that a tuning fork operates off of. And the way it's illustrated is this piano has all of these strings in it and if I were to press middle C almost missed it and if there was another piano not that one because that one's a robot (laughs) but another piano with strings in it over there and if I press middle C on this piano that piano would gently resonate That's how tuning forks work. That's sympathetic resonance. Middle C here would produce middle C there. Barely discernible. But it would gently respond. Because that note carries. That sound wave carries and it resonates in the same instrument, on the same string. It's the same principle that makes a tuning fork work. And friend, it's that kind of sympathetic resonance that Jesus has for you. When you seek Him in prayer, His human instrument in heaven right now is no different than your instrument when He was on earth. Its glorified form is still a human glorified form Because He's still a human being, which means He knows your 
weaknesses. He knows your frailties. He's walked in your shoes. He's been down this path. He's sympathetic towards you. He understands you. He cares for you. Thomas Schreiner says it this way, as a human being, he knows the frailties and groaning that beset the human race. He is not a distant and aloof high priest, but is himself intimately acquainted with the human condition. Indeed, he experienced the full range of temptation. The delight and joys offered by sin were no strangers to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it brought pleasure. He understands every temptation we face because he faced something similar. Nevertheless, he never surrendered to sin's power. He shared in our weakness and frailty, but he did not, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed obeyed the will of his father friend we don't need more sympathetic sinners we need a high priest a savior who would lead us to victory a forerunner a second adam who would show us the way to be in god's presence with favor and would pay our price and satisfy god's righteous demands and bring us to heaven and unite us to god with full access to god and endure us in our perseverance and listen to us in prayer the author then closes out his description of jesus's great high priestly ministry in verse 16 and it's maybe my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Therefore, in light of his infinite supremacy and his intimate sympathy, in light of that, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There wasn't a single priest in the Old Testament that stomped into the Holy of Holies with confidence. When Jesus went to heaven, he was back home. We can enter into God's presence with confidence that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I love that he uses the word help. Not advice, not tips, not tricks, not hints, but what we need from Jesus. Help. A call to draw near, believer. To receive help from Jesus because it's what He's offering you. To draw near the throne of grace. To draw near. It's, that, that word draw near is synonymous with prayer. And it's, a, it's in the context of the throne of Jesus. No need to explain what a throne is for. Jesus is royalty. And Jesus' throne is indeed a glorious throne. He's the Son of God. He has all ability, all power, all strength. And it's a throne of grace. Verse 16, a gracious throne because He's Jesus, because He's our Savior, because He's sympathetic. And that means that Jesus' throne is available to you. So you ought to call out to Him in your hour of temptation, in your hour of need, when you don't know how you're going to finish, when you don't know how you're going to get through your struggles. You have Jesus, an advocate for you on His gracious throne. And He's available to you. And He's generous towards you. And His kindness is unfathomable. You are welcome, friend, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ at His throne. And He will never grow tired tired of your requests. He'll never be annoyed with your presence. He lives to pray for you, to be accessible to you. He wants you to come to Him over and over again. He doesn't need you to be perfect to come. He knows you. 
He's the perfect one. And when you come to Him, you do not find judgment and condemnation. You will not find apathy, indifference, or rejection. He will offer you mercy and forgiveness. You will find grace and strength, exactly what you need. He doesn't need a performance from you or rituals from you or proof from you or validation. He just simply asks you to call out to Him, to draw near to Him, to come to Him, and He will never cast you out. Come again and again and again and again. And you will find the God-man Christ Jesus. And you will find His sympathy and welcome and pardon and forgiveness and mercy and grace and help. Do not hide from Him. Come to Him. He is ready for you to draw near to Him and there is nothing you've done that surprises Him. He already knows it all. He knows that you need Him. He knows you'll fail again, sin again. You cannot pray enough, believe enough, try hard enough, all the mistakes you've made, every thought. I'm going home in a few minutes. And you know the route. 99. Grapevine, 5, Sunland Boulevard exit. Way better than LAX. And when I get home, my mostly teenage children will say, hey, Dad. And that's about it. (laughs) But when they were 2, 4, 6, and 8, coming home was awesome. Because it was like, uh, you know, I mean, for Marilee, it was she did all the heavy lifting. And now was back. But for the kids, it was like a heroic champion has entered. <laughs> Being a dad's way too easy. And they would just attack, right? My little girl, she still got that. She'll wrap me up. And they would never, ever hesitate to come to me. It's unfathomable that little kids would hesitate to come to their father who loves them, who's home and happy to see them. And I'm just a normal dad. But God is a father who sacrificed his son to bring many sons and daughters to glory. So Christian, who seeks to persevere in your faith, who lives like Jesus did in the power of the Spirit, Won't you come to this great high priest? Come boldly. Find mercy. Get grace. And if you come to him, you will not fail to end up where he is. He will see to it. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you are for us and not against us. Help us to take our eyes off ourselves and our sin and fix them on Jesus that we never think of Him as unfeeling, knowing He's faced all that we face now. He understands us perfectly, completely, sympathetically. Thank You for His power and our weakness and thank You that He understands our temptation. Thank You, God, for His infinite perfection that You've qualified Him to be the help and strength that we need. Thank You, God, for this conference, for this gracious church. Strengthen their faith and their witness and their confidence in You. May they be boldly and obviously committed to you in prayer and perseverance because of our great high priest. In his name, amen.